The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8. This week we actually get to stay here as we're finishing our series um, based on Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And the last of the actions that Christ and God have taken on our behalf in redemption is glorification. So that's what we're going to be talking about, glorification. We're going to start reading in verse 16 together. Um, So let's do that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Creation, I skipped something. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For though we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, also call, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you so much for the truths of your word. We thank you that it's something we can gather around this morning, that we can celebrate about you. Lord, as we've done already in our singing, we pray that you'd continue that attitude in the preaching this morning, Lord, that we would find things to rejoice about and the actions that you've taken on our behalf to free us from our sin, to free us from, from the bondage that creation is still subjected to, Lord, that we still feel. And Lord, as we talk about glorification today, I pray that you would be glorified in us. Lord, help us to reach forward and look with hope, Lord, to what your plan is for us as your children. And we pray all these things tonight, this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so continuing our series here, I just want to recap very quickly. The very first sermon we did was on predestination. We talked about how we're predestined to please, I'm sorry, predestined to praise God for his blessing, for his purpose, and for his assurance. Then David gave a really great message on calling. And he talked about calling in more than a general sense, but in an efficient sense, where God calls us as his children 
And that calling is unmerited, it's complete, and it's sure. It's a foundation for redemption. And Peter did a really great job delivering us a sermon last week on justification. And he told us that justification reveals to us God's grace, God's forbearance, and God's abundance. And it's true, and I've been chewing on that this week. He gave us a lot to think about. And I believe what we've been given so far this month, as we've been talking about the elements of redemption, what makes up God's plan, what makes up what he's done for us, we've been handed what we need to view God's plan of redemption as the outpouring of his conquering love, something that will be accomplished, something that is certain, something that has been done on our behalf that we can absolutely rely on. And we can be assured he loves us because, he, because of the actions that he's taken on our behalf. And we can be certain that those actions will be accomplished and that their intended purposes will come to fruition because he's God and God's sovereign. And he gets to do the things that he wants to do. So as we look back to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, kind of the basis for our series, we do see that the final act of redemption is glorification. And it's slightly different than the others, just in the sense that all of the others have kind of happened on our behalf already. Glorification is something we get to look forward to. It's something we get to chew on. It's something we get to think about. It's something we can praise God for that has not necessarily been realized yet. Because God chose his people. He called them out of death. He gave them freedom. And now he sustains them with a promise to make them as he is. And some of you may be wondering, and it's a question I've asked, what does it mean for God to glorify us? After all, aren't we the ones who are supposed to be glorifying him? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. We are to glorify God. There's a slight difference in what it means for us to glorify God versus him to glorify us, but it's really not all that different. Our glorification of God is in living our lives as he's called us to, in a way that says we believe God is as worthy as he says he is, as he reveals himself to be in his word, as the actions that we've talked about this month, the powerful actions that he's taken make him look to be. That's what it means for us to glorify God. God's glorification of us is a final act of redemption in which he makes us like Christ. It'll happen at the resurrection of dead, the second coming of Christ, with all the redeemed who have gone on before. So this is a final action. And I want to take a real quick moment to say, it's not accidental. Uh, sometimes I think we can think it's like inactive. We die and then we're glorified. It just kind of happens. No, it's actually going to be as certain of a decision, as certain of an action as all the other three. At the end of the age, when God calls those, the, the, he, he quickens the living and the dead, as scripture says, he is going to decide and act on a decision he made in eternity past to make us like his son. He's going to completely transform us. It's nothing like what we've been able to experience today. I was really struggling for illustrations, so I asked Jacob for one, and he said, you should go with um, inauguration of the president. It's a good one. I decided not to use that one, so apologize. Um, I have a guilty pleasure. I think we all do. I'm going to admit to one of mine today, and trust that you just keep it to yourselves. Um, I found it one of Jacob's yesterday, but I'm not going to tell you what it was. <laughs> or at least I won't tell you who it was. Certain music was playing when I walked into his office yesterday. And we'll just leave it at that. It wasn't Taylor Swift, it's worse. <laughs> but I think you guys trying to guess will be far better than me just telling you. So we'll leave it. 
to your surmising, but I like to watch, I can't even blame it on my wife because she doesn't even watch it with me, the great British, British Bake Off. Um, I, t- I tend to watch it after she goes to sleep. Actually, I watched it after I was done going over my sermon last night. And so it fits. Glorification, to me, is really like kind of played out by that because you get these bakers from all over Britain who may or may not know what they're doing. And by the end, you're brought down to like the, the, the consummation, the finished product that they put before these judges. And so they start with these, these terrible ebbs and flows all throughout the show. You know, they might be great to begin with, and then they fall and they stink, and it gets brought back around. They get these terrible comments, and that's kind of what glorification is going to be like. This is probably not as good an example as the inauguration, but that's okay. What happens in our life as a result of the things that God has done. He's chosen us as his own. He's called us to life. He's justified us. He's literally given us a legal standing. We are just as his son, even though it's not realized yet. Well, one day it's going to be realized. And and we might go from doing well to doing horribly, just like those bakers do. But at the end of the age, God is going to take something. He's going to take everything that has happened in our lives, and he's going to transform that into an image of his son. We will be, not even an image, we'll be just like him. We'll be just like him. And what we set before God on that day is perfect. It's not just the best because three judges, judges decided on it. It is absolutely perfect because he's made it to be so. When we talk about glorification, we're talking about, I'm going to use the word consummation. That just means kind of finished. Um, ultimate realization of all that is to the result of our salvation. Everything we've talked about this month kind of culminates, and not to make this sermon more important than the others, it's not, kind of culminates in glorification. It, it, it gets brought up into glorification. More simply put, it's the perfection of our body and soul after death, the changing of our mortal flesh into perfect Christ-likeness. And I say it that way to draw a, a slight distinction between glorification and sanctification. There's a temptation to conflate and combine the two, and I really wanted to do it for the sermon because sanctification is frankly more fun and easy to preach. But sanctification is the process by which we're set apart as God's people and we become more and more holy or more and more like Christ. But it's not glorification, and neither is it what the passage is really after. I'll illustrate it this way. I'm going to have um, Caleb uh, play the act of the role of Hitler over here. So it's Caleb's over here is Hitler. Jacob, your shining moment. You are Jesus. <laughs> um, you'll never be better than you are at this 30-second illustration. And I, you know, being as holy as I am and great, I'm actually not going to play myself. I'm going to be Paul. All right? So when we tend to think about glorification or, when we t- sorry, when we tend to think about sanctification, I'm going to confuse the two. When we tend to think about sanctification, we tend to think that maybe we start over here in all the evilness that we could accomplish from the time of our birth until the time of our death. And as we slowly become more and more like Christ, we tend to make our way over here. And it's really not true. All of the sanctification that we can accomplish in all of life, and hopefully I'm not going too far off camera, really kind of leaves us right here, right next to Hitler. Um, Now, there might be a lot going on in the space for me to Caleb, but it is nowhere near as much going on in the space from me to Jesus. And what God is going to do in glorification is he's going to take us after death 
after really the final death, and he is going to bring us over here in the space between us and Jesus, and I have no idea what's causing that noise, but it's okay, is going to be literally nothing. Literally nothing. What sanctification accomplishes in us could be chalked up to like a clerical error to get us from Hitler to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, probably the most holy character outside of Jesus in all of Scripture, who's still the chief of sinners, the difference between him and Hitler could be a mistake if you were drawing it out on paper. Glorification takes us all the way from over there into perfect Christ-likeness. And that's no, you can't conflate the two because they're so different. While sanctification is probably the closest thing to glorification we'll experience on earth, it is so far removed from what it ultimately will be. What does that mean for us? It means that what, though we, that what we experience as Christians right now as part of sanctification, as the gifts of God's grace in sanctification, things that came to my mind were inward renewal, nearness to Christ, relationship with him, things that weren't possible prior to salvation, the forgiveness when we fall, when we mess up, when we stumble, perfect justification, no matter what I do, I still have good standing before God on the basis of his son. The community that God calls us to, a community that calls us to repentance and recognizes the grace of God in our lives, and I'm thankful that King's Cross Church is that community for me, and is so faithfully that community for me. But that's as good as it gets for us on this li- in this life. And it's not as good as it gets for us, ultimately. All these good gifts from God are given in the midst of struggle, temptation, tribulation. They're experienced in sadness, pain, ridicule, loss. These graces of God, resulting from the grace of God and redemption, are all that keep us going. But they're done in the midst of massive hurt, massive pain. They're mere tastes of heaven, mere tastes of glorification. Richard Sibbs put it this way, grace is but glory begun. The grace of God we see in our life, it's the beginning of glory. Glory is grace perfected. Glorification is the perfection of all of the grace. It's the finishing of all of the grace. It's the culmination of all of the grace that we get to feel on earth. It's the realization of all that is promised in Christ. And as our illustration shows, sanctification cannot compare to the magnitude of change that will occur in glorification. So we look to Paul's words in verse 16 through 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with us. Sorry, yeah, with our spirit. Bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what Paul is going to go on to do in this passage is he's going to defend the idea that the suffering we experience on earth is worth the glorification that we are going to experience in heaven. In fact, so worth it, they're not worth comparing. They're not worth comparing, he says. What Paul is calling us to, and what the main point of the sermon is going to be, is that we are to endure suffering as sons, certain that our future is incredibly bright, 
And we can endure for two reasons. And I have two points today. They're big points, but they're two points. The first is that glorification is a future hope. Main point of the sermon, we can endure suffering as sons, certain that our future is incredibly bright. And we can do so because glorification is a future hope. It's something we get to look forward to. It's a realization that what we experience in this life, even at its best, is nowhere near what we are looking forward to. Paul says that we, are who children, we who are children of God will share in our brother Jesus' suffering. And we may feel the urge to ask ourselves, as I've already done, is that worth it? Is our inheritance, described in verse 15 through 17, worth the suffering that it's packaged in, the heartache, the hardship that comes with being a child of God? I think many will say no. Even those who profess Christ, who seek to live out God's way, God's um, purpose for a time, may find that it's not worth it for them, and they fall away. It's a testimony of Christ in Matthew 17, and we're not going to turn there for time, when he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They'll even cast out demons and do miracles, and God will ultimately say, I don't know you. Because they found that, the, and if you keep reading, the reason is they face tribulation and they fall away. They decided that for them, it was not worth it. But Paul answers for us, and he emphatically says as children of God, yes, it is absolutely worth it. The suffering of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They're not even worth comparing to each other. They don't compare. And that makes it worth it. Uh, quick illustration of this. I, I, when I was a child, we moved up from Virginia um, when I was about four. Uh, and my mom kind of made it her mission on earth to get me as close to my grandmother, her mother, as possible. The reason being that we had moved back up because she had been um, diagnosed with cancer. Um, she, she had a couple different types of cancer. So she was realizing, you know, probably don't have a lot of time. Jay's never lived near his grandparents. I want him to be as close to my mom as possible. And we literally became best friends. We spent the next four years. If I wasn't in school, I was at grandma's. It's just the way it went. Like almost all summer there. And it was probably about a time when I was like five, five and a half, maybe even a little bit younger than that. I remember having this absolute meltdown because I had like a low-grade fever and I wanted to stay at my grandparents' house. And I couldn't because my grandmother was on chemo and you know, fever, cancer, they don't really mix very well. It caused huge problems for my grandmother for me to get her sick. Because I didn't really understand that. I just knew grandma was dying and I wanted to be around her as much as I could. And I think that my parents kind of like went through this whole rigmarole because they, they weren't just going to beat the snot out of me in front of my grandmother, um, where they like promised me things, which was not common. It's more like, why aren't you hitting me? No. Um, they would promise me these things. I think they wanted, they were going to stop at your favorite restaurant on the way home. They were just doing anything to get me out of the house and away from my grandmother so I didn't make her sick. And I think if they, they could have taken a moment, not that they could have done this, it was impossible, if somehow they could have gotten across to me that a day was coming where I would not feel the pain of separation from my grandmother and she would not feel the pain of my sickness or her sickness. That it all would have been okay. You can't teach that to a four and a half, five-year-old who just wants what they want. That's kind of what this is. This is what Paul is putting in front of us. But there's a time where pain of separation, pain of sickness, pain of loss just kind of vanishes through the power of what God is doing through us in the spirit. 
So what makes glorification a future hope? First of all, it's the realization of all that we have waited for, waited so eagerly for. And Paul first points to creation as an example. He says, creation waits in pain with eager longing. Look at verse 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of sons, of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who sustained it, or subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation waits as an example for us of what glorification is going to bring about. It's testifying that something's not right, that really nothing is right. Nothing we experience on this earth is right. Calvin said it this way, there is no element, no part of this world being touched, which being touched, as it were, with a sense of its present misery, does not intensely hope for resurrection. Paul is saying that even creation is waiting for this. And he gives us two helpful things here to look at. One, that all creation is in distress. I think we can take some comfort in that. We're not alone. The pains that we feel, creation feels. All of God's creation, all of created order is suffering from the separation that it feels. <coughs> suffering from its intention not being accomplished. Suffering from the sin that man brought into the world, pulling it away from its purpose. But also that all of creation is sustained by hope. It's waiting for something. And what it's waiting for, it's a little bit of a confusing phrase. He says he's wait, it's waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Uh, when I read that, I'm like, we're right here. Like, you can see us. Hello. What Paul's not saying is, we want to know who's in and who's out. Who the children of God really are. And God just says back to creation, guess you'll have to wait and see. That's not what's in view. What he's giving us here is a view of why this glorification is truly a future hope. Creation is waiting to see how awesome the status of the glorified children of God are. Because it knows that when the children of God are brought into that glory, it is soon to follow. It's soon to follow. And he uses a phrase, like I said, it's a little bit confusing. He, he uses the phrase, sons of God. And he switches back and forth between sons of God and then children, kind of regularly. And then he always qualifies children. And if I mean children, I'm actually talking about heirs which is why he's using sons of God. I'm not saying sons and daughters of God for a reason. Try to be fair. Can't do it here. It's sons of God. So men, women, children, you're sons of God in the situation. All right? To be fair, he goes into childbirth, so men, you kind of have to have that experience as well in, in some way, shape, or form. So he's very, very like equal with the way he's using his illustrations here. But we are sons of God. Why are we sons of God and not just children of God in this situation? Well, because sons were heirs. Not necessarily for good reasons, but we're talking about a, a generation of people or a culture of people where the son kind of just took it all at the end of the father's life. And we are heirs in Jesus in that way. We are sons of God. And creation is waiting 
not to see who the sons of God are per se, but what will the sons of God look like? What does it look like for a son, a child of God, who is a rightful heir of God in Christ to receive all that is promised to them in Christ? Creation's waiting. It says it's waiting with pain. It's waiting with the pain of childbirth. Literally, it is suffering through this time for the great expectation of what it's going to cause, of what, it's going to co- of what is going to come as a result. Creation is waiting because the glorification of the sons of God will be shortly followed by the glorification of creation. Literally, the glory falling on us is so powerful, it will envelop all of creation and glorify it along with the rest of us. Will ultimately bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, and yes, redeemed reality. And we should ask, why is this so powerful? Why is this glorification so powerful to cause all of this? It's nothing less than the final confirmation to the likeness of Christ. We will be as perfectly holy as Christ is and thus as amazingly beautiful as he is. This is what his glory, this is what glory is. This is what creation waits for. This is what we wait for. But Paul says that creation is not the only one waiting. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, eager, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We also wait with groaning. Creation can only wait with patience for fulfilling, joy-giving, life-changing, renewing future because it's the future that waits for us. It's the future that we're waiting for. It's the message of Paul to us. We asked earlier, is what we are waiting for worth it? Creation shouts with Paul, yes, it is absolutely worth it. The pain that we go through in waiting for this glorification is absolutely worth it. It makes it a future hope. It's something we can cling to. And we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, just as creation does. Again, Paul uses this example of a woman in labor. We also wait with the pains of childbirth because we know what is to come is worth it. And I apologize, someone told me last week I shouldn't use the word birth in a sermon so much, so trigger warning should have been given at the beginning of this one. Um, but it's just the reality of what Paul's getting at. We wait through the pain of life for the glorification that comes as a result of that pain. Paul explains further that we have a part in it, we have a part of it already that nature does not. He calls the spirit the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the spirit. We have a small taste of what glorification is in the work of the spirit in our lives. That's in sanctification as well. So if we have the spirit, what is it that we're waiting for in glorification? And Paul gives us two things. First of all, the adoption of sons. You can say we're already adopted. Yes, we're already adopted. 1 Corinthians 15 kind of plays into this a little bit. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you have believed in vain. Being saved, being saved, not saved already, being saved. Yes, it is absolutely true that we are saved. We are justified. We have that standing before God, but in our experience of life, it is an ongoing thing. It's something we go through. This is what makes glorification a future hope. On that day, what is true of Christ will not, be, will not just be true of us as we are in Christ and he as he represents us. So it won't just be that we're in Christ, he's representing us, and so what's true of him is true of us. What is true of Christ will be true of us completely and fully realized. We'll stand with him. It's why he uses the language of adoption as sons, the heirs of all that is his. First John 3, 2 also speaks of this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know, that when he appears, but we know, rather, but we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And I have to ask myself here, is being a Christian easy? Is daily worship easy? Is sanctification and becoming holy easy? Is being in constant fellowship with other fallen people easy? No, it's not. It's a blessing, but it's not easy. But one day, Christ-likeness, worship, holiness, will not just be second nature, they will be our only nature. And fallen man will no longer be a part of our experience. So we have adoption as sons, we also have redemption of our bodies. We're going to shed these fallen shells. We're going to trade them for glorified bodies, just as Christ did at his resurrection. There'll be no more sickness, no more poverty, no more death, no more loss, no more hopelessness, no more addiction, because there'll be no more separation from God. All of our best days lie ahead, and one day all of our painful days will be behind us. This is why we hope for what we wait for. It's a hope that saves us or causes us to persevere. We don't hope for what we do see. We hope for what we do not see. What we're promised, we wait for it with patience. This is glorification. It's why glorification is a future hope and why we can endure the suffering of this life as heirs of Christ. He gives us a second thing. Glorification is not just a future hope. It's a present reality for us. It's a present reality. For all the children of God as a foundation to face what we do each day with confidence. The things that we go through, the troubles that we experience, we can face them with confidence because glorification is something that is true of us. Paul says, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us with our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us. Just as our future hope helps us. 
Just as the promise of glorification helps us, it eggs us on, it pushes us forward, it moves us forward, the Spirit steps in as a first fruit of that glorification to aid us, to help us, to give us confidence, to keep moving forward. He presently comes to our aid. It's not something we hope for. It's a reality we interact with right now. It's a relationship that we currently have. And he helps us with a couple things. He helps us with what we do not know. It's the internal work of the Spirit. Paul lays out a weakness that we have that the Spirit helps us with, and that weakness is prayer. In these verses, he carefully takes apart any excuses we could have for not wanting to pray. Prayer is really just a foretaste of the relationship that we'll have with God in heaven, just as the Spirit is a foretaste of the glorification we're going to experience in heaven. So number one, never feel you cannot pray because you do not know the words to pray. There are times we don't know what to pray as we ought. That's what Paul says. At these times, the Spirit prays for us. The Spirit of God prays for you. He intercedes. He literally fills any gap between you and God. Between what you think to say and what you actually need to say. This happens a lot when I go over like Michelle and Jacob's house or Matt and Rachel's house and Piper is trying to say something to me that I don't understand or Isaac is talking or Silas is talking and I have no idea what they're saying and all of a sudden Rachel or Michelle kind of just spit out what was nothing close to what they were actually saying but it was 100% what they were wanting because the crying tends to stop after or whatever else happens. Satisfaction ensues. And so what sounds like blah, 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 blah to me is the realization on the mother's part of exactly what that children, child is looking for. And that is the work of the Spirit. That is the work of, not, not in that situation. That is like the work of the Spirit. Maybe it is. I have no idea. It could be an interpretation. We'll, we'll run with it. It has to be something close to that anyways. That God's children find themselves wanting to pray, needing to pray, but lacking the words to say. Not knowing how to get to the cross. And at these times, the Spirit of God takes up our incoherent babbling and prays things that are too deep for words. I imagine like an ugly cry type prayer here. Um, we've all been there, whether we want to admit it or not. Everybody has ugly cried in praying at least once if you've, if you've had a relationship with God for any amount of time. When we almost don't even understand what we're saying ourselves. <laughs> you know? We're just at our wit's end, at a loss for what to even think. It could be the result of sudden loss. It could be a life-changing decision we had to make. It could be incessant addiction that just won't stop. It could be confronting our own failings and flaws. The Spirit hears us through our groaning sobs, perfects our prayer vocabulary, and takes it to the Father on our behalf. He helps us. Paul then says, never feel that you cannot pray because you don't know what to pray for. The Spirit hears the groans beneath our words. He knows the affections and motives behind our requests. And then he intercedes for us according to the will of God. The Spirit literally enables us to pray in accordance with God's will. His plan and purpose for his people and world. And very quickly, there's five encouragements. I'm stealing these from John Piper. Very, very quickly. There's a sense in which we will never, we, we can, 
um, say that we don't know what to pray for. And, and, and maybe this verse can kind of come across as like smacking to us or it, it presses down onto us. And so five encouragements. Be encouraged that you are not expected to know the will of God in every respect. You don't always have to know what God's will is. Be encouraged that in your perplexity and groaning, you are not being monitored. You're being heard. God's not just watching to make sure you say the right things. He's hearing you. Be encouraged that God's work for you is not limited to what you can understand and express with words. Be encouraged that in your weakness and sickness and loss and hardship, the Spirit of God is praying for you and not against you. And be encouraged that God the Father hears the prayer of the Spirit, that prayer is for you and it's always heard. Simply put, God does not reject the prayers of God. It's the way the Spirit helps us. Not only is he helping us with what we do not know, we can know that he's helping, we can know that we're actually being helped. This is, this is the sovereign work of God. With the prayer of the Spirit, we have the sovereign work of God. Paul says the Spirit helps us know what to pray, but when those words run out, he shows us that there's something that Christians can know for sure. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's talking about a group of people, those who love God, those who are called, like David taught us, according to the purpose of God. This love is setting the heart on God so that in all you do, you determine to please him. If you love God for who he is in himself, you make a commitment and endure, difficult, and endure difficulty. But if you are using God for what he gives you, you tend to bail out when suffering comes. He's talking about people who love him. He's talking about people who have been called, just like David taught us two weeks ago, according to his purpose those who are in relationship with him. For this group of people, Paul gives us the encouragement that God is working all things for our good. Romans 8, 29 through 30, tell us what this good is. They show us that the definition of good on God's part is infinitely higher than ours. These verses show us that God's purpose actually is. And what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, namely the redemption of his people and conforming them into the image of his son, God is working all things in the lives of his children to make them more like Christ and bring them to final glorification. There are some things we should immediately find transformative about this truth in closing. the truth that God works all things together for our good, first show us, first leads us to gratitude and joy for even the most routine good things in life. The most routine good things in life work for our gratitude and joy because God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. They don't turn themselves good. Only God makes the circumstances of our lives good. We live in a world that is shocked and, and kind of disillusioned when things go wrong, when tragedy and hardness hits. And this should not be true of the Christian. We kind of expect things to go wrong. We expect the world to be a fallen place. We expect the world to be hard to live in. We don't expect for things to work out for good on their own. We know that when they do, it's all the grace of God. When things work out, our response isn't, of course, this is how it should be. 
We say this is all of God and we praise him for it. Christians can take a positive view of life without taking an unrealistic one. This truth removes general fear and anxiety when life goes wrong. In fact, it teaches us that it hasn't gone wrong at all. No matter what we experience in life, if God is working in all things, it must include the little and seemingly meanless things. In other words, there's no accidents. Psalm 1633 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Lots, if you've read in scripture, there's a few different places they talked about. They would, they would cast these straws and whoever drew from the pile or they'd hold the straws, whoever drew from the pile the longest one. That, that was kind of like where fate had landed. What Paul is saying to us here is that God works in coin flips. Nothing is seeming, seamless, or seemingly uh, meaningless. That has to bring us some comfort. Even when things look like they are wrong, God is at work for our good. Further, this truth, help, this truth helps us see God's purpose in difficulties. The fact that there's nothing meaningless in life, he works in the little things, also lends to it that God's purpose exists in difficulties. If God is working for our good in everything, then we can know that both the good and bad things serve the purpose of furthering the good in our lives. Therefore, if we think we need something good that God has withheld from us, we can know it's not necessary. And if we feel that our lives have been ruined by some bad thing, in reality, it is playing some very important role in our lives. Romans 8.28 teaches us to look at life's troubles as part of God's loving purpose for us. And we can say about our life or our circumstances, nothing good can come from this. But this text completely denies that. He's working in the good and the bad. He's working in the small and the big. And lastly, this truth gives us the confidence that we cannot ruin God's good purpose for us. All really means all. He's working all things together for good. It even includes our backsliding and our sin. Sin is always bad. We always live to regret its painful consequences in our life. We regret the hurt that it causes. We, we regret the things that it ruins. But God is always good. And he's always so good that he weaves even our sin into our ultimate good. He uses sin to humble us, to teach us a right view of ourselves, a greater appreciation for Christ. He uses our sin to show us our weakness and our frailty, to point us to our need for him. And he even works through sin to bring salvation to his people. So what the disciples were after in Acts 2 when they said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Paul is literally looking at the people who killed Jesus and says, yes, you killed him. You did this. You committed this sin. Under the watchful eye of God, you committed this sin. But God raised him up, loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's what Joseph was speaking about when he told his brothers in Egypt after saving Israel from famine. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You sold me into slavery. You sinned against me. And God used that to save many people that should be kept alive and are still. This is not to cause us to excuse our sin, to see that God is working through it. These encouragements all point us back to the great truth that God's sovereignty works all things to our good. 
In addition to that, we have the Spirit as the first fruit of glorification, as he helps us to pray when we cannot. And further, we have the promise of God and the glorification of his people, something we can hold to with absolute certainty. Those I predestined, I call. Those I call, I justify. Those I justified, I glorified. It will happen. Our hope is certain. He's predestined us. He's called us. He's justified us. We will be glorified. This is our hope today that causes us to endure because our futures are incredibly bright. The struggles and the hardships of life are worth it. Paul gives us one response, and we don't have time to to delve deeply into it, but he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, anything we can go through in life. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is the reality of what it is to be a Christian. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this truth of glorification. We thank you. It's a sure hope we can look to, but it's something we can hold to now as the Spirit helps us pray. As he sanctifies us to be more like your Son. As we watch the sovereign work of God at lives, at the, in the lives of those around us and our lives ourselves, we can trust that the purpose that he has set forth to accomplish will come to pass. It will be done. And that all of the hardships, all of the pains, all of the sufferings, all of the sins, all of the temptations, all of the losses that we go through in life can be gone through because we look forward to a day that is far greater than the deepest hurt and deepest pain can compare to. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.